Hey y'all, we're starting the show today with a tape of a fairly graphic description of assault. So if you want to skip it, jump ahead about 20 seconds. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. You just kiss. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab them by the pussy. <laughs> I can do anything. We all remember this tape from the 2016 presidential campaign, right? It's from 2005 when Donald Trump was a guest on the TV show Access Hollywood. He was on a bus with then-host Billy Bush waiting to meet an actress to do an interview. Today's show will not focus on the guy in that tape who's talking about assaulting women. Instead, we're focusing on the other guy, the one laughing along, Billy Bush, the bystander. One of the awful things about that tape is, if we're honest, on some level, we've all been Billy Bush. It's true. We've all been the bystander. Hearing or watching something messed up at work and not saying or doing anything to stop it. So something happened to me at PCC last Thanksgiving. This is Peter Qualiatine. He's the co-founder of the Organization for Prostitution Survivors. He runs their men's accountability program. He teaches men how to think critically about society's ideas of masculinity and femininity. That's a lot to think critically about. It is. And we'll get into that later. But before we do that, and before we even tell you what happened to Peter at PCC, we have to explain to everyone who doesn't live in Seattle what PCC is. Yes. Okay. So PCC is a local grocery store chain here in town. If you want to get granular on just how happy your cow was before it got killed (laughs) and ground up into hamburger meat, you want to shop at PCC. It's so true. Or if you want to buy a fluoride-free charcoal toothpaste, you want to shop at PCC, right? Yes. (laughs) So, of course, if you're looking for an amazing bulk spice and herb section, you guessed it, you want to shop at PCC. Which I enjoy. But so anyway, I'm I'm there putting whatever it was, my sage, into my little tiny bag. And there's this guy next to me. And as we're we're sitting there at, at the bagging area, filling the bulk bins is this woman who's a staff member at PCC. And so she's got this bulk bin out and she's picking up this heavy bag and pouring it in and she's bending over. And he turns to me and he said, hey, I wouldn't kick that out of bed. Like this is this bougie liberal place where, you know, people bring their own bags and everything else. Where, and you're, where you're putting sage into a where bag. Where I'm putting sage into a bag. And I just like looked at him. I was like, you pick the wrong man to talk to like this. And, yes, Peter. And just uh, was saying, why would, you, why would you use that to open up a conversation with me? What is that about for you? He was like, oh, man, I wasn't saying anything. I was just trying to, you know, trying to connect. And I was like, well, that's really about bonding, and it requires the subordination of a whole class of people who I'm not willing to subordinate. Like, we, you, let's, let's talk about this some more. And he, he got really embarrassed and a little angry and, and then left shortly after that. Isn't that a great story? Yes. Peter was not willing to subordinate us or stand silent while someone else did it. And Jeannie, wouldn't it feel good to say, okay, cool, don't be like Billy Bush, be like Peter Qualiatine? Yeah, that would feel good, but of course it's not that simple. Peter was super prepared for that moment. Most of us don't even have that kind of language at the ready. But also, just saying you're going to do the right thing doesn't mean you'll actually do the right thing when your Billy Bush moment comes. I say this because I know there have been times I haven't called out messed up stuff at work, even though I want to think I'm always going to. Our battle today is figuring out what it really takes to be an ally at work. The good news is we have hella tactics for you. So many tactics. This is Battle Tactics. For your sexist workplace. I'm Eula Scott Bino. I'm Jeannie Yandel. And yes, your workplace is sexist. 
even if you're on television. And even if you have the best bulk organic herbs in town. Before we get into allyship and what it looks like, we have to get into why it's necessary. So we've been programmed in our society for a long time about the roles men are supposed to play and the roles women are supposed to play. And that starts early. I'm wishing, I'm wishing. Do you know this voice, Jeannie? Oh, I do. It's Snow White. And you know the plot, right? Oh, I do. Terrible things happen to Snow White. She falls into a magic coma, and that same horse-riding, sword-carrying prince who saw her for six seconds earlier in the movie comes and saves her by waking her up with a kiss. That's not consensual, right? No, it's not consensual. (laughs) What an excellent point, Eula. (laughs) Now, Prince Charming may think he's an ally to Snow White. I mean, he saved her after all. Hello. Right. Except we never see Snow White weigh in. I mean, in most of those scenes, we don't even see her speak. She just opens her eyes from the magic coma and the rest of her life is decided. I mean, it's not like we see Prince Charming give Snow White opportunities to lead the kingdom or write laws or even help her learn how to fight in case the evil queen comes after her again. That's not allyship. Seriously. Movies like these and others always portray men as saviors and women as helpless. To men, women are possessions. Who does she think she is? That girl has tangled with the wrong man. Do you remember Gaston from Beauty and the Beast? Oh, I remember this Disney movie. No one says no to Gaston. (laughs) Done right. Dismissed. Rejected. Publicly humiliated. So Gaston was clearly a jerk, but almost the entire village loved him. You can ask any Tom, Dick, or Stanley, and they'll tell you whose team they prefer to be on. Men wanted to be him. Women swooned over him. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, look, we're not trying to blame Disney movies for the existence of toxic masculinity here. But we are trying to say these rigid expectations about how women are supposed to be. Right. Smile and be grateful when your prince savior comes. And that's the only acceptable response. Right. <laughs> and how men are supposed to be. Strong. As a specimen, yes, I'm intimidating. Decisive, not scared of anything, and knows who needs saving, and of course how to save them. Right. Those messages are pervasive. And there's tons of research about how those messages affect women. But honestly, I never thought about how those messages affected men. Well, not until we talked to Peter Qualiantine, that is. So he told us men don't really think about that either. And that's why the first thing he does in his classes is this exercise he calls the act like a man box, where all the men in his class start writing down what they think it means to be a man in our culture. You know, they'll say things like be strong, never have any emotions except for anger and pride, um, be good at sports and all of the all of the messages that we get when we're coming up about what it means to be a real man. And then we put a box around that and talk about the impossibility of any man meeting that manhood standard all the time, yet the desperation for men to try and measure up. Uh, largely because we're afraid of other men's judgment, right? Largely because if we're seen as outside of that box, that we're going to, and you know all the names that boys will get called if they're right. seen as not yeah. being real men. Right, and, sissy. Yeah, and what do those names gay. have to do with? They have to do with being a woman or being a gay man. And so what is that teaching boys about the way that a real man views women and gay men? 
that they're less than, that they're subordinate to, that the worst thing you could get called is to call those, get called those names. And when you do get called those names, how are you expected to respond, right? To the other boys, they call you a sissy. Right. What are you supposed to do? You're be angry. Be angry. You're supposed to escalate. You're supposed to get all in their grill and say, don't call me a sissy. You are, and so is your old man, right? <laughs> and, and you secretly hope that your friends hold you back. Mm. And you secretly hope that your friends hold you back because you know inside that if you get put into a class with women and gay men, that it's going to make you vulnerable to other men's violence. Wow. I'm so, I'm crying. Oh, I just, <laughs> that's not something that I had really thought through. And having to be stuck in a box at all times. You know, to paraphrase Thoreau, he said, most men lead lives of quiet desperation and go to the grave with the song still in them. So we just want to pause here for a second and say, Neither one of us were expecting to talk to Peter and right out the gate feel a ton of compassion and sadness for men and how they're pressured to act masculine like that. I mean, I actually feel kind of sad for Prince Charming and even Gaston from Beauty and the Beast right now. Totally. But a big part of the act like a man box is putting women and people who seem feminine into other boxes where they're not really human and are somehow lesser. And all of us in those lesser boxes are scared of how men might punish us if we step out of our boxes. And, you know, I can remember um, when I was uh, in high school, I have a sister who's a couple years younger than me. And I can remember her telling me that in class that she used to not answer questions sometimes that she knew the answer to because she didn't want to appear smarter than the boys. Right. So self-censoring herself in order to fit into this culture. And I think that that happens all of the time. This is where allyship comes in, because even though it sucks to be in the man box, being in that box means you have a lot of power when another dude says something or does something dehumanizing to a woman in front of you. It means that dude feels comfortable with you, and you can use that comfort to speak up and stop things. And so much of the time at our jobs, the messed up stuff that happens can seem really small, just like a comment or a look. But Peter says... None of it is small to the person it's aimed at. Because when we're talking about interrupting oppressive behaviors, it's the microaggressions and it's the small stuff that goes unnoticed that we need to draw attention to and that we need to have those conversations about. And those things are all over in the workplace. And, you know, I'm in line at the supermarket and I have the conversations about stuff. I remember when I came back from maternity leave and in one of my first meetings with my new boss, she told me about a time when somebody walked in on a new mom pumping and the new mom went, quote, crazy because of her hormones. It was just this little story and this offhand comment. I wish everyone could have seen her eye rolls. (laughs) I remember feeling so frozen, though, like, wait, I'm a new mom. Does my boss think I'm crazy? That's not a good thing to say to a new mom. No, it's not. But the thing is, I'm sure my boss thought she was being understanding about how hard it is to be a new mom and work. But it came across to me as, boy, I have so much empathy for how hormonal and crazy you are right now. It's just it's not easy to know the right thing to say. Even Peter struggles with that. Sometimes I wish that, you know, all women would agree or all people of color would agree and like right. and come out and like give me the handbook about how to be a better yeah. white person, how to be a better man. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. Like but it it's, would be so convenient. It would be so convenient and so less clunky and so less messy. And because there is no handbook on how to be a better person, Peter still messes up. Just a year ago I was out doing a talk with uh, a woman from my agency and we were 
you know, doing this presentation and we were uh, going to change the topic and, and talk about something else. And so I said, well, I think I'll let her talk about that. And she looked at me and she's like, oh, you're going to let me talk about that? Mm-hmm. No way. <laughs> right. Totally. <laughs> and I was able to say, "Ooh, yeah, you're right. Here I am, the white guy in the room with the dry erase marker in my hand running the show. And I'm going to let you talk about this because that's the privilege and the power that I have in this space right now. But here's the beautiful thing. Peter didn't wallow in his embarrassment. Instead, then I got to model, I'm sorry, and I will try really hard to not do that again. You know, and I can't promise that nothing oppressive will ever come out of my lips because I know it will. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I can promise you is that I, I will always come back and hear about it from you. And I will always do an accounting, a reckoning of my own behavior and talk about it with you. And I will figure out ways to not have it happen quite in this way again. And it comes from the understanding that we have privilege and blind spots. And that the people that are expert at calling out the blind spots are the people who don't share that privilege, right? None of us can be allies. It's an aspirational thing, right? That we, it's something that we work towards. Yeah, I find the word ally a really interesting one. This is Ruchika Tulshian. We think about it um, as men who just speak up for gender equity in general, and that's what I've seen it be used as. And it's exciting. It's nice to see that more and more men are sort of, especially uh, when they hear about issues going on in the workplace, they'll be like, oh, I'm an ally. I believe that men and women should be equal. Ruchika's a writer. She's also an inclusion and communication strategist. Companies hire her to help them with gender equity issues, stuff like pay, promotions, hiring. And at those companies, she meets CEOs and managers who all define allyship as promoting equality between men and women at work, who identify themselves as allies, right, and say they want to achieve gender equity at their companies. And I'm like, are you willing to do these things to change? And they're like, nope. We don't have budget for that. Right. We don't have budget for that. We just want you to give us a pin. Literally, come in. (laughs) Do you have a certificate? Talk to us for 45 minutes, and then we have checked the box, and we have fixed gender inequity. We bought a box of safety pins before we called you, (laughs) and we are so excited to hand these out. And, like, I know which one I'm getting. I got, like, an extra big one off of Etsy. And um, (laughs) can you just come and give me permission to wear it? Please, go ahead. (laughs) You know? Oh it, by God. the way, I wore a little pin that says inclusion. <laughs> Did it fall off? It fell off. Oh, oh no. Snap. See, my inclusion pin fell off. Oh. I mean, that's how flimsy <laughs> these things are. <laughs> it fell off. For Ruchika, the word allyship signifies a lot of talk, maybe a little pin wearing, but otherwise no action, no change, no real camaraderie. When I worked in a largely male-dominated team, the men on my team, despite being huge advocates, uh, sorry, huge allies. The men on my team, despite being huge allies for gender equity or talking about it, would still largely go for coffee or lunch together and not invite me, right? And that is a huge way of showing, you know, not only to my team, not to our team and not only to myself, but to the organization that we are a team. We band together. We're advocates for each other. For Ruchika, we're just allies for her. You know, we talk a good game. Mm-hmm. Hmm. That feels really lonely. It really was. Yeah. I ate lunch by myself yeah. for a long time. I can really relate to that, Jeannie. In my early 20s, I worked at a plant nursery that's the most Seattle, like you would know it. And my coworkers <laughs> were all white and all said they were really progressive. But they were closed off to me and would leave me out. And it really got to me. I would dread going to work. And if I had a question, I can remember being like actually afraid to ask because they would flat out ignore me in front of customers. That just 
sounds like a toxic hellhole. That's exactly what it was. So eventually I quit, and in my exit interview, I told the owner about the way I was being mistreated. How did they react? Well, he apologized. I mean, I think he saw himself as an ally, and he said he'd had that problem before with those same staff. He actually cried, and he asked me to stay. But I'd been defeated. I had to get out of there. Oh, my God. I mean... One, it wasn't your problem to solve. But two, I can't even believe the plants were able to survive in that environment. No, for real. <laughs> You're so right. Oh, my God. Honestly, though, your decision to leave isn't uncommon at all. I mean, the Bureau of Labor Statistics found last year that overall, the number of women in the U.S. workforce is declining. It's been declining since 2000. And Ruchika Tulshan told us that in the tech industry, women leave their jobs at twice the rate of men. All of that is why Ruchika, who hears CEOs and managers talk about themselves as allies again and again, has made a decision about the word ally. She's done with it. But the word that I'm really interested in is actually advocate. I would have loved it across my career if there were moments where I could be treated the same way that I saw men treating other men, you know, and being an advocate for my success and being an advocate for my journey. And I've seen a lot of men over the last few years, a lot of white men over the last few years, actually sit down and try and understand how does structural oppression, how does institutional racism, how do these concepts, how, do, how does gender inequality play out in the workplace, and how can I use the privilege and power that I have and that responsibility to make a change? And that's really the only way that we're going to be able to do this, right? And that's the reason why we don't really need allies. It's nice to have someone who's in the background talking about these issues. It's totally different to have someone in the forefront being like, okay, this is an issue. I have power and therefore I have the responsibility to change this. Oh, I just, I have to point out, Eula, doesn't it sound like Ruchika's paraphrasing the credo that Spider-Man tries to live by? It so does. <laughs> We're showing our nerd again. I know. <laughs> okay. But anyway, Ruchika is also saying, if you don't use your power, and yes, your privilege, all the time to advocate for women and people of color, to have better jobs and fairer workplaces, then are you doing anything to make things better? If you want to be an advocate, you have to be a relentless champion a relentless champion. That means you do not, this does not slip your mind. Relentless champion, much like Spider-Man. If you really want to be an advocate, not just say some nice words, but actually make things better and more equitable at work, you never stop advocating. ABA, always be advocating. Spider-Sense is always on. Yes, Spider-Man does not get time off, and neither do you, champ. But wait. If we know real advocacy is a constant, relentless effort, and we know there's going to be disagreement about whether we're doing it right, and we're definitely going to screw up sometimes anyway, how do we even get started? Okay, so we have battle tactics for that. Tons and tons of tactics, including how to get started. Coming up next. Okay, so we've got a big battle today. How to be a real honest-to-God ally or advocate, or to paraphrase Mr. Rogers, how to be a real helper. And we know the stakes. Yeah, but it's also true that sometimes people don't even realize they're making work toxic for some coworkers. I mean, you know that dude at PCC didn't think about how he was affecting the woman he was bonding with Peter over? Could you imagine if she'd overheard? Ugh, seriously. So we're going to teach you how to realize it first. Yes. So pretend a coworker calls you out on something you just did or said, tells you it's sexist or not okay. And in that moment, pay attention to how you react. It's 
definitely a moment when your own biases can come up. Those biases are not helping you. you got to get rid of them. So that's why we like to call this tactic, take out your own garbage first. And when you find yourself saying, I'm not sexist. <laughs> you sound kind of sexist. <laughs> that, that should be, in it. That should be on, a, on the checklist. If you find yourself saying, I'm not sexist, maybe it's time to, to do a little more listening and uh, a little more kind of uh, uh, evaluation, self-evaluation and kind of measuring kind of where you're at. And so recognizing that we're all kind of at, at different spots on the same kind of trajectory of addressing these issues and that those of us who are a little further on can definitely model and, and, and help point the way for other folks, but to not kind of make this dichotomy between good men and bad men and I'm an ally. So you're not either a good guy or a bad guy, but if you want to be a better guy, you're going to have to take out your own garbage. I mean, probably more than once. I mean, in fact, you might do it regularly because there's always garbage. You're an adult. (laughs) Yes. But as you deal with your own biases, you're going to start noticing other people's garbage, too. And this is not a good feeling because it means you're getting a clearer sense of why your women co-workers, your queer co-workers, your co-workers of color might not feel as comfortable at work as you do. When I notice other people's garbage, my heart beats faster. I start to feel kind of panicky and freaked out trying to figure out how the hell I'm going to use my white cisgender lady power to address that garbage in a way that like doesn't upset anybody. Peter Qualiatine has a tactic for that. Don't worry about saying the right thing. Just say something. I think saying something is, uh, is, is, is better than saying nothing. And I think recognizing that there's no magic words that are going to fix the situation, that it's going to be awkward, that people are going to get defensive. When, I, when, people are, when men are getting defensive, I know what I'm saying is working. <laughs> Just like, you know, white people have a responsibility um, under white supremacy to talk to other white people about racism that men have a responsibility in patriarchy to talk to men about sexism. I really love the just say something tactic. Me too. Because even though it's going to be awkward, you still have a responsibility to speak up. I mean, we're all in this together. And if you're struggling to figure out what you're going to say, we know that's hard. We've all been there. Yes. How about you just say one word? One word that indicates you feel weird about what just went down. A mentor of mine many years ago, uh, when something would happen in the course of a meeting or a conversation, sometimes she would just say, ouch. Yeah. <laughs> like, right, the, the, that somebody would say something and she would say, ouch. And the conversation didn't have to end and the meeting could continue or whatever, but it was it was noticed that there was something there to take a look at. And more often than not, people would stop and we and, and there would be a conversation that, that would ensue about it. So a- anything from that to the questioning, a line of questioning, to... Um, to, to actually saying that something is not okay. Mm-hmm. I think any of those things are, are okay. Ouch. You can use that word when you see something messed up, but you don't know what to say. Or you can use a different word like yo or hey or awkward. <laughs> <laughs> the word doesn't matter. Starting the dialogue does. So interrupt the messed up thing and make space to talk more about it. Ruchika Tulshian says there's research showing saying something actually works. It's called bystander action, and on college campuses, it reduces sexual assaults. Ruchika says bystander action is a tactic workplace advocates can use effectively, too. When you witness other people doing the wrong thing, to actually call them out, because you have privilege and influence in a way that they would be like, hmm, really? You think so? 
Right. Um, so in the same way, like if if a you know if you're trying to stuff, say you're trying to stuff your board, you're trying to expand your board, and you're like, okay, let's bring in a new member, and and the nine white men in the room, and you're the tenth turn to each other and they say, you know what, we should bring in John, you know, who's exactly <laughs> like us. And if you are someone who has stopped and thought about it and has gotten it, then you turn to your other board member who suggested John and say, you know what, John, it's time to have a woman. We really need to think about how we can get more women on our board. What are we doing wrong that we keep perpetuating the same type of people joining our board again and again? So bystander action in some way, you know, stopping other people who are perpetuating these issues and challenges for women to progress in the workplace and stopping them and be like, hmm, maybe there's something you can do or we could do together to change this. Let's pause for a second here. So if you're a straight, white, cisgender dude and you're listening to this, you might be feeling a little beaten down right now. We get it. It may feel like we're asking a lot of you. But let's just remember, you are Spider-Man. You are. Seriously. You have great power. I mean, we can all see it. And with great power comes great responsibility. Ruchika Tulshian has another specific concrete tactic just for you to use that power in a beneficial way. Yes. You know what a mentor is, right? We all know what a mentor is. Well, Ruchika Tulshian says mentoring isn't enough. What we really need is sponsors. Level up. Mm. And the difference is that mentors is someone who you can, you know, who's a shoulder to cry on, someone who you can kind of bounce off ideas, um, you know, off and, and whatnot. But then at the end of the day, like, that's it. There's no real action taken from there. Sponsors are people who actually use their political capital, their privilege, to ensure that your career gets the boost that it needs. Ruchika did tell us there's research showing white men who sponsor people from different backgrounds see a little financial benefit. Women of color don't get that benefit when they sponsor other people. Mm -mm. In fact, they're sometimes penalized. So white guys, we need you to be sponsors. Ruchika's got another tactic for you, too. I'm calling it the alley-oop. Get it? Alley-oop, alley-oop. <laughs> you have to tell me what an alley-oop is. Okay, I'm sorry. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. So it's really just a fancy assist in basketball, right? A player creates an opportunity to dunk, and another player assists by passing them the ball while they're in the air. While they're in the air. So they're already actively trying to score, and they're clearly badass because they can jump that high. Exactly, right? And they just need the ball. So if you're popular and lots of opportunities come your way, share the ball. Instead of going for another point in the game of life, get an assist. Like, I need to give up an opportunity, even if it would be great for my business or it would be great for me to promote myself or whatever it is. It sometimes means saying, you know what, I have a lot of influence and I have the privilege or I have some privilege. And there is someone next to me who deserves it because they're great and they're bright and they're smart. And all that's going against them is the perception that people have about them. Mm -hmm. Right? It's saying, you know, if even if tomorrow Eula never talks to me ever again, even though I recommended her, her point of view matters. The decisions she puts out in the world matters. The fact that people can listen to her opinion matters. And you know what? For me, that's enough. This dovetails really nicely with our final tactic from Peter Qualiatine. And it may not seem very active, but it's one of the most important tactics we can share, honestly. Yes, and you're actually doing it right now. It's shutting up and listening. Mm. Even if you don't agree with what you're hearing, when women and people of color try to tell you what they're dealing with at work. But it means that you always listen. And that when you don't defer, that you do so in a really heartfelt, authentic way, and that you don't become the kind of more 
pro-feminist than women man who's like consistently breaking it down for women, telling them, teaching them about feminism, right? We're going to be blunt here. If you become that guy trying to teach women about feminism and their own oppression, I mean, ugh, you're falling back into that act like a man box, domineering, knowing more than everyone else. But if you want to practice listening to a lot of different points of views, the Internet is perfect for that. Yes, you can learn a lot if you diversify the voices you follow on Twitter and Facebook, except maybe you don't like social media. Okay, fine. No problem. Listen to podcasts made by people with different experiences than you. Podcasts like this one. You're already doing it. Seek out TV shows and movies and books made by women and people of color of all genders. There's so much out there for you, and we're going to help you find it. That's part of our job. So we'll send you a list of stuff to check out in our newsletter. And all you have to do is subscribe at KUOW.org slash BTSW. All those resources will expose you to more voices and experiences. You're going to love it. We've given you a lot of tactics to help you become a relentless champion. You've got the power. And now you have a sense of how to handle the responsibility to become Spider-Man. Yes. To become Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Slay. Which means your work is never done. And that's why... We're not giving a merit badge this episode, you guys. Right. It's like a safety pin. It's little, it's flimsy, it doesn't help anybody. Because as both Ruchika and Peter said, being an ally or an advocate does not mean using one of these tactics one time and then boom, you're done. Right. Also, you don't get to decide whether you're really an advocate or not. The people you say you're advocating for do. Because if those folks don't think you have their backs, then you're not really an advocate. But we do want to recognize real advocacy. So please write us with stories of a time someone effectively and meaningfully advocated for you. Write us at btsw at kuow.org. We'll share those stories later this season. I mean, I'm already planning to cry because I have a really sensitive spot for people being good to people. (laughs) I mean, we all should. Oh, I can't wait to hear those stories. Okay, we're going to leave you with one final thought. There is something better than a merit badge here. If you use these tactics again and again, you are actually helping make sure your job isn't a toxic hellhole for you or anybody else. Mm. That's a win-win. All of us are slayers in this scenario. All of us are Spider-Men. We can do this. Wait, is it Spider-Men or Spider-Mans? Oh, I have no idea, but I think they get it. Battle Tactics for Your Sexist Workplace is produced by The Wonder Twins, Caroline Chamberlain Gomez and Maya Aina. Edited by Jim Gates, who always listens to us. Our managing producer is Brendan Sweeney. This podcast was inspired by the book Feminist Fight Club, written by the amazing Jessica Bennett. Our theme music was composed by Kessia Gordon. I'm Jeannie Yandel. I'm Eula Scott Bino. Keep up the good fight. See you next time. <laughs>